Hello and welcome to episode three of the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy. Made to episode three. Great job, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Matthew Sroka. Today on the episode, we're having a really good conversation with Dr. Mary Neville, along with Dr. Susanna Ibarra-Johnson. I will introduce them right now briefly, and then we'll jump right into the conversation. Uh, in the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy podcast, we highlight innovative, peer-reviewed, research-based practices in the field of literacy, specifically uh, research that targets, you guessed it, adolescents and adults. Uh, and our conversation today does exactly that. So Dr. Mary Neville is an assistant professor of literacy education at New Mexico State University. She's a former middle and high school English language arts teacher and is interested in culturally sustaining and responsive English language arts curriculum across secondary classrooms and teacher education contexts. Dr. Susanna Ibarra Johnson is an assistant professor in bilingual TESOL education in the Department of Curriculum Instruction at New Mexico State University. Ibarra Johnson is one of the co-authors of the Translanguage in Classroom, Leveraging Student Bilingualism for Learning. Her commitment to improving the education of bilingual students is grounded in her experience as a bilingual learner and teacher. Her research focuses on biliteracy and translanguaging pedagogy in bilingual education and English language development contexts. Today, we'll be talking about their article called My Literacies Expand Over Two Languages, Language and Literacy Autobiographies as Justice-Oriented Teacher Education. And as always on this podcast, the articles that we discuss on each episode are available for free. If you just click the link in the show notes, wherever you listen, it'll take you right to the article. And we talk about some specific strategies and uh, actually specific assessment uh, strategy that, that, that you can use in your classroom. And you can go to read more about that specific strategy uh, if you read the article. So on today's episode, we this idea of deficit-based thinking and deficit-based acting. Um, and what it looks like for bilingual and multilingual students in the school system. And we'll throw out there some specific examples of what kind of that deficit-based thinking looks like in schools today. Uh, we'll then talk about the assignments that that uh, Dr. Neville and Dr. Ibarra Johnson created to counteract so some of these deficit approaches and how these assignments not only counteract, but they work to humanize all students. Uh, we also will touch on the power of collaboration amongst colleagues and, and much more. So here, here's the conversation. So I'm now joined by Dr. Mary Neville and Dr. Susanna Ibarra Johnson. Uh, thank you for joining me on the Journal of Adolescent Adult Literacy podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, Absolutely. Let's get started with this. And um, Mary, we can start with you. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about kind of who you are, your background, and kind of what brought you into this work? Mm -hmm. um, so I uh, am a former middle and high school English language arts teacher. Um, I taught in Jacksonville, Florida, in Detroit, Michigan, um, and I really loved my time uh, teaching there. And now I um, am now an, a literacy teacher educator uh, in English language arts, especially for secondary methods classrooms. Um, and in this specific article, we talk about um, a content area literacies class. So I also I also work with uh, secondary teachers who um, who incorporate who are working to incorporate literacy across their content areas. Um, so that's a little bit a lot of what my 
current work in teacher education is stemmed in my time as a classroom teacher. Okay, thank you. And if you switch the locations around a little bit, I think we have very similar <laughs> biographies there as far as backgrounds and, <laughs> and what we're doing now. So that's cool. Yes. Mm-hmm. Susanna, how about you? So, uh, yeah, as well, I've been, uh, well, not K-12, but uh, K-8 for the most part in in California and uh, the last 20 years in Texas. I mean, I'm in New Mexico, although I did teach a couple of years in Texas. So, um, but uh, my focus is uh, primarily has been in bilingual education and teaching English to speakers of other language or TESOL. In particular, English as a second language in secondary. Uh, looking at how our English learners um, are developing their language and literacy um, in their second language. Uh, but, uh, but the bulk of the work has been in New Mexico, where I've been focusing with English learners in their bilingualism and biliteracy, um, in the, in, specifically in dual language programs. And, and now, so I'm now at New Mexico State as an assistant professor, and I am the bilingual TESOL education um, focus, uh, and from K-12. And so uh, that's, that's been my emphasis, and that's really where uh, Mary and I have uh, came in together, actually, at New Mexico State. <laughs> um, uh, and we, we talk a lot about of our students in regards to their their bilingualism, their literacies that they're, they're learning and so forth. And, um, and so we're really excited to share our work that we've been doing at New Mexico State. Yeah, thank you. And I'm, I mean, I'm excited for this conversation. I, your article, um, I, was, I was so excited to read it because for, for two reasons. One, I think it addresses a, a really important topic that's becoming more relevant each year, right, as we have more diverse classrooms and teachers need to um, I think the tools to to handle these more diverse classrooms, and also though it's not just about um, the problem. Like you guys offer, I think a really good assignment that helps address um, the issues that we're going to talk about. So so let's get into the issue. I think one of the things around, and we can talk generally, and then maybe get into some specifics. But can we talk about a little bit about asset versus deficit mindset and deficit kind of teaching and perspective in terms of our uh, bilingual and multilingual students? First, just a general definition of what we mean maybe by asset and deficit-based instruction. Well, yeah, I'll go ahead and get started. So I think, you know, uh, with the asset and deficit, I mean, going back from, um, I think, in the 1980s, uh, Richard Reese uh, published an article in regards to a deficit view of language of our uh, by multilingual students uh, back then, li- or labeled as limited English proficient students, and so he approached it in a way where um, he really wanted to look at again the assets versus the at risk, the deficit, the limited, and all those terminologies that our uh, federal government actually uses has used, and so I think um, he wanted to look at it from um, language as a resource. It will move from language as a problem to language as a right and language as a resource. And so I think a lot of times you will hear asset-based or resource-based. And so those are things that we really need to bring forth in our teach with our edu- teacher educators that, uh, because a lot of times you, you will hear some of our pre-in-service teachers uh, say, oh, well, they don't have this, they don't have that. And, and you know, I always stop them like, okay, let's see what they can do with language or literacy. 
and 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 actually just shifting that cannot to can is like right away that you could see that they're like oh well what they can do oh wow this is what they can do so again that's a very asset based approach or resource based approach that we can uh begin to uh, have dialogues with our teachers about so that they, even from their own personal view of themselves, I think that's where it needs to start. Because if they don't start with that, then that's gonna be projected in their instruction, uh, their design, their instruction implementation and so forth. So I think, um, you know, and I, that's why I referenced Dr. Ruiz because I think he really brought that to light back in the 80s, how we need to draw from very deficit views to more asset-based or resource-based perspectives of our students. Yeah. And I appreciate that a little bit that historical context because this is an issue that's not new. Like we've been talking about asset-based um, education strategies for a long time. A lot of them though hasn't they haven't really seeped in into K through twelve education a lot. I feel, and I wonder, um, maybe Mary, maybe you can add to this because we're going to be talking about maybe a strategy to address deficit-based um, thinking and teaching. But I think it's important to to recognize and call it out, understand kind of how it looks. Um, and so can we look at this from, from kind of these different perspectives? Like what is, how do we see this kind of deficit mindset reinforced by, by other students, by teachers, by larger kind of school systems, um, and even maybe co communities and maybe even by kind of the bilingual and multilingual students themselves. How do they kind of manifest these deficit mindsets? Can, can you trust any of that? <laughs> Well, I think um, I was I, in response to that and also to what um, Susanna was saying is that Dr. Johnson was saying is that the one of the reasons we came together when we were we were thinking about our students at New Mexico State who really beautifully often have um, this bilingual background um, in or multilingual background in multiple languages. And I noticed and Susanna was noticing as well that it seemed like when, when students would talk about their own bilingualism, they would, they would have it frame it in kind of a disadvantage that they were preparing mm -hmm. to be teachers. And we write about that in the, on page one of the article that um, one of my students said, I feel like I'm already at a disadvantage because um, English is not my first language. Um, and so I think a lot of what this article tries to do, deficit-based thinking is present across every subject area, grade level in, in schooling context. Um, and what we really are wanting to see here is how can we help, like Dr. Johnson said, how can we help shift our teachers and teacher candidates thinking about even their own resource, linguistic resources that they have to see that, um, that, that uh, bilingualism, multilingualism, and also multiliteracies that we focus on a lot in my courses are all resources rather than something that you have to like keep separate from your academic self. Um, yeah. And there, there's something in my mind that's kind of wild about all of this, right? Because in society at large, uh, we value and we respect people who speak multiple languages. If I were to go to apply for a job, um, especially in the education world, like it's looked as an asset to be bilingual or multilingual. Um, I'm often find myself jealous I'm a, I'm, I only speak English. I'm monolingual. I often find myself jealous of my other teachers I work with who can speak multiple languages because they have um, a better opportunity to, to reach more students. And so somehow <laughs> this thing that we look at in society as an asset is often, you're right. Um, I think that opening quote by the student 
um, that you mentioned at the beginning of your article, right, where they view their bilingualism as mm -hmm. somehow a disadvantage within the education world is kind of, it's, it's wild considering how we view it in society. And I think Dr. Johnson helped me in writing this um, when she was, we were talking through the idea of racialized ideologies, too, um, yeah. why, why that's the case and the history of the Bilingual Education Act that she really helped me to see um, why that might be the case that even though it should be, bilingualism should be seen as this asset, it's not that way in schools or even in our teacher candidates' mindsets themselves. Um, yeah, that, that's a great point. I think, uh, you know, I think we have to remember uh, some of the historical trauma that our students have, uh, that our students, especially heritage speakers, in, and I would say in the Southwest in, in particular, um, and, and other areas, so not to limit the others, but I think uh, what's happened is uh, some of our students that are our students now, their parents, and they, and they all uh, share that in their uh, literacy autobiographies, how, you know, well, I I'm ashamed of my Spanish. I'm ashamed of because uh, my mom used to get punished if she spoke Spanish or he mm -hmm. spoke Spanish. My, uh, uh, my uh, dad, and so so that's that, that that's that, that's part of I think the work that we're also trying to do in the sense of um, their confidence and also that yes, you are bimultilingual, you know, and so but we have to remember kind of that uh, historical. Um, mm -hmm happenings that, that, you know, that we can't erase and, and it has really affected our students, um, even at this, with this generation, because they kind of skipped a whole generation of, of, uh, bilingualism because of that. Parents didn't want them to teach. And they'll say that again in their language portraits or literacy autobiographies, like, we don't want you to learn English because, uh, Spanish, I'm sorry, because, um, or Dene or any of the other languages that we speak here in New Mexico, that because, um, you, you know, I don't want people to see you like they saw me and so forth. So that that we have to bring that back, you know, as as uh, Dr. Noel said, is like kind of the whole racial linguistics part of it that uh, Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa talk about mm -hmm. that, it, you know, they bring that up because they're like, it, we uh, starting with our Native American population, then all, now with the Hispanic population that happened as well to kind of erase their language. But but now there's really a lot of interest and in, for our work, that's, you know, I think uh, being in dialogue with them about uh, being, you know, recognizing it and continue to write about it and, and so forth. I think we're uh, making some, uh, really embracing their bimultilingualism. And I would also say that what was, at the same time as we're saying that, that students would, um, say some like deficit-based thinking about their own multilingualism it was um people are uh, vast you know so like they would also mm -hmm. say these really beautiful things about their all their language and their linguistic repertoires so that was something i really uh learned from in uh working through this project with dr johnson that uh students uh, have many feelings about their languages and uh, these kind of tasks in the classroom can help um can help work through them and also uh, maybe surface some of these asset-based ways of thinking about their languages and literacies. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And um, I want to come back to that kind of the humanizing nature of this project that you guys do with, with students. But I want to, and I, I don't mean to belabor the point, but I think it's important for us to be kind of reflective and understand um, the ways that this deficit-based teaching shows up. And I just want to kind of address myself and other teachers because I was in, you know, 
in the middle school and high school class for a long time. And I think what happens is, and you guys can respond to this, if this is um, accurate or inaccurate, is sometimes teachers, right? They, we, we see the roster, we go on Canvas or Blackboard. And one of the first things we look for are things like accommodations, right? Like what kind of accommodations are we gonna need to bring our students, whether it's IEPs, how many English language learners do we have in there? Um, so we kind of know what to prepare. And in that kind of mindset, I think teachers who are already kind of overburdened, overloaded with work, we see, oh no, here are some students who are gonna need even more extra scaffolding, extra extra work. On top of that, kind of um, teachers are kind of barely surviving and now they have to kind of shift their, their teaching to address all these kind of diverse needs in their students. And so I think even from before we we meet our students, and maybe this goes back to your point about how um, kind of learning about their lit- lit- literacies humanizes them. Because I think from the moment we see the roster, we start kind of making assumptions about them and about about us and what it means for us. And, and these are somewhat understandable things, but it, from the moment we're walking the door, we're already a little bit kind of frustrated with the increased workload that we're gonna have to face. And I think what Dr. Johnson was saying, like that shift of thinking of literacies as the resources that can be brought into the classroom Mm -hmm. is what's so what I've learned a lot from her about like that, that instead, if we're looking at the students, um, yeah, these full repertoires that can be used to also kind of I to me, I think thinking of this languages and literacies in a broad way can help to, um, you know, break down that hierarchical idea between teachers and students too, where we can see all of our funds of knowledge. Um, uh, Gonzalez et al. said that all of our funds of knowledge, all of our um, all of our experiences can help support the learning in a classroom. Um, but I do understand that teachers are very overburdened as well. So it's a good question. Um, and I think something like what we try to do in the article tries to get at what um, what we can do to try to work through some of those thinking that thinking yeah thank you and and yeah we're gonna i think the and and i'll get into the assignment in a second and we're gonna because i think the activity helps address that and i think you're right just kind of this mindset of um going back to what they can do mm-hmm. um, not focusing on what they can't do the other thing i just want to throw this out there because i was guilty of this too at times i think sometimes and i think your assignment addresses this sometimes we're guilty of as teachers with um, this shallow cultural uh, talk on the surface, right? Like, let's, let me read, like I, I saw this in English, let me read um, Frederick Douglass so I could check off my kind of African-American author and character um, as if that's somehow addressing cultural diversity in our classrooms. Where your assignment, and we can get into it, your assignment talks more about kind of like you said before, Dr. Neville, this idea of the diverse, that the diverse views we have, each individual student has on literacy. And I think to do um, cultural sustaining pedagogy right involves not just a, a, a shallow kind of um, one text or one book, but an ongoing mm-hmm. process of kind of diving deep into the cultures, our own cultures and the cultures of our students, right? All right, so if we can get into the assignment. Um, so you guys, in your courses, you guys uh, have a literacy autobiography. Um, can we just start by um, talking about what a literacy autobiography, auto, autobiograph, a literacy autobiography is and why you use them in your classrooms? 
So, Dr. John, okay, yeah, Dr. Neville, was, go ahead. I, I was just going to say because um, Dr. Johnson's was like a language portrait, and so then mine was the literacy autobiography. Okay. Um, so I don't know if you want to explain, but Dr. Johnson, how we came to this or your project first. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think they're both autobiographical mm -hmm. you know, in, in, uh, in a sense. Um, so I think uh, kind of going back to what we were, uh, uh, my kind of philosophy of this can-do philosophy is like, what is it that it can do? And I think one way to start even with teacher educators um, is to find out, what, again, what are their assets, their resources that they're bringing uh, linguistically, literacy-wise, um, culturally, and so forth. And so uh, one particular, the, the language project for me really uh, provides this, and it's a very multimodal way of expressing too, because then you kind of have to address that. I mean, you have students that are um, as as you in our article, you can see very artistic. They can they express themselves in that way, and uh, uh, that's just uh, in that mean. And so, I, I, one of the things is that I those questions that I, I ask or prompts um, are very um, open ended, so that way they can be able. I'm so sorry, but I should turn off my email. That so that they could have um, uh, be able to express themselves. Uh, in a way that they see themselves, again, kind of from a positive view, because um, I have had some students that uh, put like, well, I don't have any, I am not bilingual, I am not, you know, right away. And I'm like, okay, no, let's, let's focus, you know, uh, um, on, uh, tell me a little bit about where you went to school. And then they start off that way. They're like, actually, I am. And then they just start drawing and labeling and putting things onto the, a particular silhouette that I provide. However, they're free not to use that silhouette, but it's, again, they're just uh, tools so that they can begin to express themselves of who they are. Uh, and I think because of that, throughout the semester, they'll reference that, oh, that's kind of the, they'll, they'll start making connections of the readings, of course, it, it, and they'll be like, oh, wow, that's very similar, you know, uh, Nunez said this, and that's very similar to what I was thinking when I thought, and I'm like, exactly. And so for me, it's kind of like a springboard for them to really be able to get and connect uh, with the readings that are part of the course. And um, and then at the end, they actually do have a reflection that is much uh, from day one to uh, after um, 16 weeks, it looks different. Uh, and then if I see them in another course, it's even more, a lot of them actually do this language portrait with their own students. Mm. And they're like, wow, you know, I do it, and and you sh and they'll even send me pictures of what their students are doing. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is fabulous. So I think for me, it's 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 a tool for them, but also for their students, so that they can again, when they do see their roster and they have a hundred, you know, middle school, secondary, they have a hundred students. They're like, oh my gosh, I have thirty L's. I want them to be like, oh yes, cool. I'm gonna do the language portrait with them. I'm gonna see who, what their uh, assets and what are they bringing, so that I could then do assignments that are related to them and differentiated that way and scaffold and and so forth and provide them with all of those. I mean, that's I think that's part of our job as as teacher educators to provide them with tools that they can take that are that are not just as you said a checkoff list of oh we read this that it's really building the, uh, for coming from them and drawing from them so i think that's the best way and then they start making connections of what literature they want to do in activities yeah i love that because it 
the, the language portrait provides you with an understanding of who they are, mm -hmm. but also kind of allows them to kind of more critically look at their own language you, you, usage um, and, and apply that to, to, to their learning and kind of an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 Dr. Neville, what, what about you in the language in the literacy autobiographies? Yeah, so um, I I had art. I the reason I really loved uh, Dr. Johnson's portraits specifically is how it centers that multimodality too, and like how it allows for um, a little bit more. Um, yeah, thinking broadly about what literacy and language can mean. Um, so when she was first talking, when I heard her first talking about this, and I think our first year here at New Mexico State, um, I thought about my own project that I do with students, that's the autobiography, um, and how I had um, included in that in that assignment, I include, you know, like a six to 10, um, 10 page paper that you can write through in a more like memoir autobiographical style. Um, and also, there's like another option that you could do more of a multimodal piece. So I think um, in thinking of these two assignments together, um, they absolutely reflect on our have our students reflect on their language practices um, with the hope that um, I feel that Dr. Johnson and I have a similar outlook on teacher education in two ways of, you know, dis, um, deconstructing that kind of deficit-based way of thinking of language and literacy, and then also providing models for our students to then incorporate with their own students in the classroom. Um, Dr. Johnson, I hope that's fair to say. So, um, sure, yeah. So, so I, with that together, we wanted to see what does this do for our students um, by having them reflect. And then, yeah, the goal of having them do it with their own students is what um, would be the ultimate, uh, what we would want to ultimately happen. Yeah. And just a, as an aside here, it's, it's really cool to hear, you know, two educators collaborating and working off each other. And mm -hmm. I think we need more of that in education. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but you mentioned this idea of thinking about literacy more broadly. Mm. Uh, which which brings me to this question. I think a lot of us carry this assumption, a lot of our students car car carry this assumption that when we think of literacy, we think of the space inside the classroom as where literacy happens, right? Where all the reading and writing happens. I think part of your argument, right, is is to call for students to look more broadly, even outside the classroom for where liter lit literacy takes place. Do you find in kind of what students produce, is it mostly based off what, Hmm. How, their understandings in the classroom, or are they able to kind of make those connections between their home life and, and literacy? Oh, that's a good question. I think um, you're asking me, right? I didn't. Yes. Okay. Um, I I think that the literacy autobiography specifically, um, which is what we can think for teacher educators and teachers generally, how you construct assignments to help students bring about um, some of that reflection. Uh, they definitely bridge more often their home, uh, family, cultural communities, um, you know, friends, uh, uh, people that they've known and lived experiences that they've had outside of the classroom far more often with this specific assignment. If I was thinking about it broadly across assignments, um, even though I do try to like to have this as a present part of all of my assignments, you know, thinking of literacy broadly um, and space and place, it, it still happens. But I think because this specifically asks students to reflect upon their language and literacy learning, it, it's a it's more um, amenable to that. Mm. Dr. Johnson, what about you? When even 
with the portrait assignment or even just in conversations about literacy, um, do your students tend to look at literacy in the context of school or are they able to make those connections to home as well? Not, yeah, I think yeah, I think beyond uh, kind of going with the the, the portrait, I, I, I you know it's fascinating how they start with themselves and as they move uh, because I'm thinking of the example in the article where one particular student started with herself how she, at home this is what I did for language and literacy. Uh, it was in Spanish mainly, but then as uh, she as she moved up to the silhouette, silhouette, the body silhouette, she's like, oh, but then, you know, as I went to school or my community, you know, it was very vibrant. It was, it was Spanglish, it was this. And so she started making all these connections and then, and then she went to her head. She goes, but now I'm at the university. Uh, and I'm like, uh, I'm a, I speak millennial English. I say, so, you know, hmm. she, you know, she was just like, she went from home to community to broader perspective of, of her life, you know, and how she used language and literacy, really how she expressed herself. Um, so it, it, they, uh, I, I, the prompts themselves allow for them to really look, uh, of course, in the school, but then beyond that at home and community. Uh, so kind of like home community and school so that they can see this, this whole um, so that I can really get to know, well, oh, wow, what, who are the, these students, right? And it's not just in school. They have a home. They have a community and so forth and beyond. Um, and so they're able to articulate. And that's what some of my students actually share with me when they come back and say, oh, I did it with, you know, some of my students are uh, over in the Navajo Reservation. They're, they're like, and, and wow, what I found that they do in their on, uh, on their sovereign land is this, this. And I said, that's great. You know, but they would have never have known that if if they didn't let them express within this. Again, I think it's a multimodal way of doing it. I'm not a great artist, but, you know, when I do it, I do. I kind of like, OK, oh, yeah, I could put this. I could put that. And so uh, imagine someone that is artistic. They they just go even further. But uh, but yeah, they do. I think it's it's important, though, to to be able to do that, to look at the home literacies uh, and, and beyond beyond just the school, I should say. Yeah, and it, it sounds like you prompt them in that thinking too as well, right? Like you, your prompting kind of helps them to think about it that way as well. Right, right, right. Uh, I would also imagine like there's, you have the portraits and autobiography, but then there's conversations around these texts as well. I wonder like what role do the, um, not just the assignment themselves, but how much do they interact and talk to one another about their assignments and kind of what's what's revealed through kind of discussion around around these artifacts. Well, I'll, I'll, I know uh, the first year, uh, Dr. and I, we started in 2020 when the uh, pandemic started. So we were those professors that started <laughs> academia, and, uh, and and so well, the first time that I used them were uh, implemented in my course was uh, I used Canvas and. Uh, I was just blown away by, because then they had to respond, you know, and listen to several of them, all, however many they wanted to, but at minimum two. And uh, just the response, because that's actually uh, uh, with the article, that's where I, I drew my, uh, the data from. Um, and, and so they were uh, just the exact, the responses, or even them just getting to know, wow, that is, you know, learning about others because it was an online course. And I, and there were a lot of them for, 
throughout New Mexico, um, they learned a lot from each other, um, uh, of course, with literacy and language. But most importantly, I think, uh, as Dr. Neville said, kind of their funds of knowledge and, and even how uh, a lot of them were like, I can relate with that because I lived in Juarez. And when I crossed the bridge, this is what this happened. And then, they, they, I mean, the limit was like 300 words. And I don't think they even looked at that. They were just like, just type it <laughs> so I was like, whoa, this is awesome. You know, so it generated a lot of conversation uh, via, of course, it's uh, via um, the canvas, right? But, uh, but, uh, and and I really encourage them to audio record themselves instead of writing because I wanted to see their face because that was the first time I taught online. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need to know who my students are. And so most of them were uh, recording like we are here, and uh, and they the stories that they brought from home, in particular. They were very rich. I, I just thought, and so I think everyone else thought so too. And they, uh, it just generated a lot of interest of, uh, uh, amongst each other, which, which is hard to do, you know, as you know, on online. But that was a, I was, you know, that was great to see that. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, online. I think one that's biggest knock is it's hard to do authentic conversation yeah. and instruction. And it sounds like you had a lot of authentic instruction yes. and authentic conversations happening exactly. in an online space, which is that's really cool. Dr. Neville, how about you, um, the conversations around these texts? Yeah, similarly, um, this was done during an online course. Um, so I think that I would have changed it in the moment to think more about like um, the recording of the student themselves, to think of how they're even talking through their, their autobiographies and then being able to share it across contexts. Um, so I have other ways that students kind of communicate within an online course, but within the literacy biography itself, uh, that was um, kind of uh, not seen as much as I think Dr. Johnson's was. Um, but one thing I did love when Dr. Johnson was talking was about, in thinking of how students express their ideas about their own literacy autobiography, it reminded me of your student that said uh, they use their hands to communicate. Uh, and so I think that that line really also connects between our two separate assignments and how language and literacy are so intertwined as well. Um, so I think even though this might have been implemented in a different way in a face-to-face -face classroom where students would talk through their autobiographies in a little bit um, different ways, uh, they still were able to uh, see how uh, similar uh, experiences, but then at the same time, like we said, each individual person is different. They have different experiences too with language and literacy. And I think that that was powerful for students to see. Yeah, that, yeah, it's a great point. And that gets back to, um, and, and by the way, I think it's so cool that you guys kind of did different activities that kind of got at the same thing. And and this is kind of my encouragement to teachers, and we talk more about this, but how it doesn't have to be, and they can read about this assignment in the article, but it doesn't have to be this exact assignment. Like they can do similar right. assignments that causes students to kind of deeply reflect on mm -hmm. literacy, how they talk about literacy, and kind of where that where, where that comes from. And I think a lot of it goes back to what you just mentioned, this idea of it humanizes um, students. Mm -hmm. And can we can you can either of you, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Neville, um, talk about how this assignment, um, either the assignments, the portrait or the autobiography, how it goes about humanizing these students and maybe other students? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a great question. Um I think, you know, the, the humanizing part of it is that um, 
you know, I guess I'll, I'll bring in Paulo Freire, you know, reading the word and the world. I think for them to really understand that, or as uh, Freire would say, is like every text has a context. And so, you know, every text, whether it's oral, written, or multimodal, has a context. And so th them looking at each other's uh, portrait, that was the text, and they were really contextualizing within what they were what was going on in their life because some of them it was very personal um and some of them it was uh uh even brought tears to the you know they, they would share how this really brought out what they they have been um um not been able to express again kind of from as i started off with some of our students being heritage language speakers that they, they're, you know, they would split themselves in half in the silhouette and they would say, I feel like I'm split up. So it was very like healing as well. So I think that's what humanizes it, that it's, it was healing for them to be able to put it on paper and for people to then um, validate that, yes, you are bimotelingo. Yes, you are this. And, and you know, uh, and, and at the end seeing kind of the, well, you know, transformative phase of them realizing, you know, I am bilingual and I'm actually going to take a Spanish course because I really want to be able to expand my linguistic repertoire and so forth. So that for me is powerful because I think, um, again, you know, we get into teaching to really humanize. I mean, that's, that's why I got into teaching is to be able to uh, work with students to really get to know themselves and, and be able to then build, uh, build who they uh, cultivate who they are and not necessarily in an assimilation way, assimilationist way, you know, for them to embrace who they are. And I think that's what these autobiographies really do, because I don't think people validate, um, uh, in particular, I think, um, students of color, uh, you know, what they bring. And, and I think by doing that, that really springboard, I mean, it just like the floodgate opens, you know, they're like, oh, wow, actually, I remember I did this, you know, just in our conversations, uh, you know, of readings, you know, uh, Barbara Rogoff wrote about, you know, activities that you do. And they're like, actually, I did that, too. That was like when we, we did tamales. That's what I, that's actually, you know, what activity theory is about is they're connecting these things. And, and that's what I want them to do. I don't want them to be telling me what the article saying. I want you to bring in what you're First, so for me, that's what humanizing uh, is. And again, you know, because every um, every student brings a lot of wealth to our classroom. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Dr. Johnson. And and specifically, we're talking about kind of this um, minority students who are often you mentioned in the article racial I ideologies around some of these minority students. Um, it becomes all the more important, right, to stop to to kind of push back against that. And one way we can push back is by humanizing our students. And um, I, I was doing my, I remember doing my dissertation and my advisor, one thing my advisor repeatedly said to me a hundred times is in my article, which focused on my dissertation, which focused on English teachers. Um, I, I had five English teacher participants um, and I would write about, and I would write in the conclusions and I write in the findings that English, English teachers do this or English teachers believe this. And my mentor was always like, you can't say that. These five English teachers did this, right? Or believe this. Um, I can't speak for every English teacher here. Um, and so, and I think what, what your work does, right, is it shows that um, sometimes we might just view this student as, oh, a bilingual student or a student struggling to learn English or something. And what, 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 your, what these assignments do 
is I think say, no, like this, this individual student has so many different aspects of literacy happening in kind of all aspects of his life and language happening in, in all these varied aspects. Um, not like anyone else, right? This whole unique aspect. And I just think it's really interesting, important to, to think and, and talk about that. Um, when we talk about, all right, so, and I, I know I apologize, guys. I, I provided you all with this neat outline. Now I'm going off script with all these questions, putting you on the spot. I'm sorry. Just your hearing you talk brings up all these other uh, interesting things that I want to know about. Um, but uh, can, can we just, uh, to kind of wrap up this conversation about literature autobiographies, we talked a little bit about it, um, but some of the benefits for teachers and for students whether monolingual students or, or bilingual students, um, you write in your article uh, about this idea of how these assignments can cultivate joy and pride with the students. Um, can you guys just touch on, again, real quick, what's the benefit of doing this with students? And maybe talk about that joy and pride as well. Yeah, so um, one of the things that I appreciated in looking back at this article and then also when we were writing it and doing the literature review on literacy autobiographies, language portraits, um, to see the benefit of doing things like this is that it seems that most educators and most scholars are seeing or that do these and see benefits for it. They see that asking students to bring their own experiences really centers their own texts as like the main text of a course, um, which I think is really powerful to mm. help students see not only that, okay, we want you to talk about your experiences, but also to center that as um, equally as important as, as these other scholars that we're reading, which I think Dr. Johnson was talking a bit about too, that it's not just, um, we of course want to read as many scholars as possible. And we also want to disrupt that hierarchy a little bit and, and, and help students to see not only what their experiences with language and literacy are, but also um, how those experiences are equally important and help to frame their understanding of the world. Um, and then I think I do try to, in a lot of my assignments, have as many opportunities for students to reflect on, of course, the you know dehumanizing experiences of um, that can happen in schooling contexts um, and also make space for that joy that occurs. Um, and I think that uh, like even just looking at Dr. Johnson's uh, portraits from her students and the beautiful colors and the ways that it, they talk about the language moving through them, like in their, in their own self, um, you can really, you, I, when we first looked at those, we could really like feel that in just even seeing it in that multimodal representation um, or the, um, I had music students in my content area literacy class and the way that they talked about mu the music classroom being, especially when they, uh, when the students who were learning English at the time, um, they, they, they saw that classroom as like a space of like a safe haven almost is what I think that they called it because they could feel like they were expressing their literacies and languages in a way that was, um, prideful for them and not seen as like they need to fix their language use. Um, so I think that offering the space for that. Um, and then I think one of my students also had where he wanted to, you know, shift what kind of music he has in the classroom rather than only um, maybe this uh, 
uh, traditional forms of classic music instead thinking of how how can you bring in your their own um, his own cultural backgrounds through um, Mexican folk songs is what he was talking about um, and that joy and pride there is really important um, I think to help facilitate and not just that we are saying this is what you should look at for the text but he you know our students are actually the ones who are bringing forth those important texts of their lives so um, I think that that's how we, I attempted that, um, how we attempted that in this assignment. Yeah, and I'll add because I think, so uh, one particular student that I remember, um, she um, she was uh, she was from Arkansas and she said, you know, I don't speak any, um, I don't have, I just have English and this. I said, okay, well, let's let's see what you have. And so she started drawing and uh, what, what she, uh, we met and then, and she's like, uh, I go, well, okay, at home, uh, well, so what do you speak? She goes, well, you know what? In Arkansas, we call it this type of English. And 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 uh, when I go home, I speak this type of I said, there you go. There's, <laughs> you have your Englishes, you know, you have. And so she started drawing and, and writing, you know, when I go home, this is what it sounds like. And these and she put, put phrases of what it looked like, or what it sound, uh, what they spoke and so forth. And, and she took a lot of joy and pride on that, I would say, you know, but I think so, you know, to kind of. Uh, really bring up that, of course, these po- language porches are not just for bimultilingual. It's also for mm-hmm. all of us. We all have a language, languages, you know, and so I think we need to be able to uh, embrace that and and find the the joy of recognizing that and, and have pride like she did. You know, you could already see when I listened to her, she was like, actually, I do. So when I, and she shared everything that she had in the portrait. So I thought, you know, for me, that's that I, when I go to conferences, when I go to any professional learning, I always like, I already found one activity that I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to plug this in. I always think of like, Ooh, I can change. (laughs) You know, I went to, it was a poet and she, she had an activity that I thought, Oh, it was kind of like I am, but she called it, this is my altar. And how do you, and so I just thought, oh my gosh, this is like a great activity. So I'm always looking for those so I can bring them into for my students. Okay. Um, I'm going to get back to the script now, I promise. Um, so if we look at some way, and that's, I think, a good transition to, to, to this question, how we can, as teachers, incorporate some of the ideas from this article into our own teaching, whether we're teaching young le- learners or adults, is it as simple as providing a space to have these conversations? Or what What would you say as far as how we can incorporate these ideas, whether you're teaching math or English or at the college level, high school level? What does this look like? That's a great question. Yes, I think, I mean, I think with both of them, uh, there'll be some adaptation, obviously, for science, math, and I mean, the prompts would look different and um, on what they would write. I mean, uh, uh, because of math, for example, you're looking at math, the language of mathematics, right? And so maybe they could write, what is the language of mathematics at your home? Oh, well, at the kitchen table, my dad's talking about the, you know, he's a construction worker. So, you know, the perimeter of the house. So, you know, you would change it to the language of mathematics, the language uh, of science, the language of uh, social studies, uh, history. So for the language project, I think you could change it to that. And and it is, I think, you know, uh, with the language project, I, I've presented that in, in conferences and um, and used it in my courses and, and people, and I provide what we did in the article, kind of the some of the prompts and so forth and how to, the how to, 
they uh, they take it and you know every now and then I'll hear a story like yeah you know I used it it was great it worked out great it's part of my curriculum now so I think you can I mean I know that's why we were very strategic in putting some of the ways that we did it and then also how teachers can then take it up in their classrooms. Mm-hmm. Dr. Neville, anything to add as far as how this can be how these ideas can be incorporated into into different classrooms? I, I was just trying to look up, um, because I don't want to ruin the quote, but Dr. Goldie Muhammad in um, Cultivating Genius, which is a great uh, text to think about um, centering students' experiences, has something about asking students asking students about themselves. So I think it's not so much the autobiography assignment, but how can teachers construct assignments that um, that help students themselves to, you know, to answer, to be asked about themselves, because that's not always what happens in school. Um, and then helping them to, of course, what they want to share with uh, with teachers in that context. Um, so I think that that's a good way to think about that prompting before, like, specific assignment. I, I love what Dr. Johnson said, that she's always looking for things to do in the classroom. It's not so much about the one assignment that we do and more, um, yeah, I guess that orientation toward asking students about themselves. Um, and I, I have tried, this is not a new thing. This is something many people have done, but, um, for the past couple courses for content area literacy, we've done a mapping. Um, so it's of a place that's important and kind of like what Dr. Johnson was saying, if it's math or whichever content area you students would bring up like important place, important spots within that map of a place that, um, can be, uh, ways for students to then reflect on on their language and literacy practices within that one important place. Um, and again, that that gives it to the student and they can choose the place and it um, offers, I think, choice and offering as many options for both what they want to talk about, how they want to talk about it, and like the format of how they're going to express that is what um, is most helpful, I, I have found. Yeah, I think that's really true. And this idea of, I love that idea of asking students about themselves and finding places and opportunities to do that because I think it's especially important with bilingual, multilingual students, students from different cultural backgrounds, because uh, it's going to be like, I am familiar with my culture and language. Um, outside of that, like I have less familiarity. And so how am I going to learn more? Well, I'm going to need to ask. And students might be reluctant to volunteer the information. So I need to create spaces where they're comfortable asking those questions or sharing those details um, about about their their lives and making it broad enough, you know, that they can decide what they're feeling comfortable to share. So, mm-hmm. Abs- yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, have you guys continued this work? Have you guys are you, have you guys? This is 2020. Have you guys had more classes where you've done this assignment? Have you had anything new since the publishing of this article, as far as? Um, findings or, or kind of re- realizations or is it kind of re- reaffirmed your initial findings? Yeah, I, I think reaffirmed and, and just like Dr. Neville said, I think it's, it, it's you know, we're a very strategy-driven type of education. So it, yes, the strategy is important, the protocol, activity, whatever. But I think it's it's the, the it's definitely, I just love what she said, that it's it's getting to know your students, knowing your students. So for me, that's, I always have to have a grounding activity throughout 
my lessons of knowing your students because uh, each article brings something else that I'm like, huh, I wonder what they think about this. So I always try to pose questions. But I think for me, I continue with the language portrait because I think um, it really provides me, uh, it really gets for me uh, to know my students in a way that I wouldn't, unless you had, you know, did research for each class and interviewed and so forth. Because it's kind of a type of an, an interview that let, allows them to express themselves. So I think um, it de definitely has validated what we've written about and, and beyond, I think. And that's why I'm always trying to be creative with uh, different courses require different types of portraits, if you will. And so that's important to me. That's yeah. ultimately important for me to uh, to find those particular protocol strategies and activities that I can embed in my classroom for that purpose. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I appreciate this idea of specific pro pro protocols and strategies because I think sometimes we can all have this mindset of like, I want to get to know my students and I know that's important, relationship building and all that. Um, but I think it's also really important that we have specific things that we do in our classroom to intentionally try to 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 do this to get to our students not just saying hi but like designing assignments designing protocols to get to know our students well um so we can do all this other work of humanizing our students um dr neville how about you what has your been experience since 2020 with this assignment oh yeah i've i've done it in each course for content area literacy um and i think that it overall affirms what we've what we found in um in our project together um, and I think something I've loved to hear, I've, as I've mentioned, Dr. Johnson saying that her teacher candidates are now doing it with their future students. Um, mm. I think that a next step would be that kind of reflective piece across um, maybe even multiple years, because the what I usually have them do, and I think you said you did this too, Dr. Johnson, where they, my students do the autobiography toward the beginning of class and then at the end of class, they actually look back at it and based on what we'd learned in the class, like how how do they think about their literacy and language experiences now? Um, and they have a lot of interesting things to say about that, where they are seeing things. They're like, oh, I definitely still believe this thing about language and literacy, but I have a new idea about this other aspect of my experiences. And so I'm kind of wondering um, that's something that I've seen across a few sections of the course in this assignment. And I'm wondering how even more so if you ask these same teachers, you know, in a few years, if they would add things, um, of course they would, cause they would be, I think teaching now. <laughs> and so there'd be a lot of different types of literacies they're engaging. Um, so yeah, that's something that I've noticed across, um, this assignment is that the ways that it can really help teacher candidates to reflect on their own experiences. Yeah, I also wonder, you got me thinking now, that this idea of following it through, and certainly like our, our literacy biographies, autobiographies will always be evolving, but like we know with students, there's a lot of deficit mindsets around how we view and talk about students, and that's, this work addresses that, or works towards addressing that. Um, but like I said before, and, may, and maybe I'm really off base with this, but I think within kind of ad adults and teachers, we tend to view that as an asset. And I wonder being in a school system with all of that kind of deficit thinking around the school system, now being an adult in that school system where it's looked upon more as an advantage to be bilingual, how how then does that shape how they view their, their bilingualism being kind of an adult professional in that 
place. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, so as far as uh, kind of what's next for you all, are you guys, are there other projects you guys are working on? Um, I really enjoy talking about this specific um, area, um, but is, is there other plans or other things you guys have in the works? Well, yeah, I think we're, I, I know um, this semester, um, Dr. Neville was, had uh, some of our bilingual students. And so we're looking at to see oh, from my uh, bilingual education in TESOL. So um, she, it was a social linguistics, psychosocial linguistics. And so I, uh, we're going to look to see how uh, some of the assignments and, and then continue. Cause I think we're, we're looking at our courses and see and collaborating. I think that was a good point that you had uh, earlier was that, um, the collaboration, I think we're coming from a K-12 system, right? Most, all three of us that we taught there. Uh, I mm -hmm. think we need more of that uh, now being uh, in the academia uh, because we have amazing experts at the, at the university. I mean, just some of them, I'm like, wow, look at this, what, what they can do. I'm always impressed with all my colleagues. So I think more of that needs to be done um, so that we can, again, um, share the wealth with our, with our, our, of knowledge with our educators. And, and so uh, Dr. Neville is definitely one that I collaborate with a lot. And so I know we're looking at future projects uh, with courses that we cross list together. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. More collaboration amongst teachers is, yeah, is needed and a good yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Dr. Neville, what about you? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I've mentioned this a few times, but like working with Dr. Johnson has, it just is so fruitful for me to see my work in a different light and my teaching, especially. Um, so I agree that that kind of collaboration is really important um, because I specifically learn a lot as a teacher um, when I work with other others who are um, thinking through these ideas um, of humanizing pedagogies more often. Um, and I would also say that that connection between um, something I have found is like, yeah, that connection between my area is, is English language arts, literacy curriculum, and uh, Dr. Johnson's is language. So I really like how we're, most of what our, we're trying to do is to see like the many, many, many connections across mm -hmm. those two contexts, um, even though they can feel kind of separate sometimes. Um, so that's one of the things in the course that we were mentioning is, again, how can we open up ideas of form and modality for our students to help uh, them reflect on, you know, scholarly writings and then their own experiences across um, language and literacy contexts. Very cool. So if people want to follow you or kind of follow your work, is there a good place that they can follow you? Well, I only have Facebook. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't have Twitter or anything like that. But thank you or, for saying that. Um, okay. We're both at New Mexico State University, um, and our e our emails I think are on the article. Uh, but we yeah, love yeah, they can feel free to contact us. We'd be more mm -hmm. than happy to um, uh, reply or any questions that they have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, Dr. Neville. Dr. Susanna B.R. Johnson, thank you so much for, for spending some time and talking to us about, thank you. about this issue. Mm -hmm. yeah, thank, thank you. I so appreciate it.